Well, again, good morning. Man, worship band, thank you. Doesn't music have a special way of just ministering to your heart and, uh, and filling you up with power and, and strength? So thank you all for doing that. Christiana, man, little, little package. Got a big voice. Love that. Uh, again, thanks for taking some time out of your weekend to be with us today. We are super excited about this summer here at West Bowles. Uh, here this summer, we're trying to do a bunch of things to more fully live out those one another passages that we read about throughout the entire scripture. And so from combined worship service, thanks for making this a, a priority. It's a little change, I know, in schedule for some of you. Uh, to our summer nights, which is coming up this first one, Tuesday night, 6.30 out on the field. Just a time for us as a, a church family to hang out together. There'll be lots of field games out there. Uh, the fire pit and some s'mores will be going on this week. So we're excited about that. We've got VBS coming up uh, in July, so our kids can all be together. Will's excited about that one already. But we've got a lot of great things happening in and around this church over the course of the summer. And hopefully, um, our prayer really has been that you would just connect with folks, maybe different folks than you would normally over the course of the next few months uh, during our new summer schedule. Uh, in addition to the things that we're going to be doing together, I'm pretty excited about the things that we're going to be talking about together. Uh, we started a new sermon series last week entitled, Like a Good neighbor. And here's the basic gist for those who maybe are joining us for the first time this morning. Uh, from Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, the one filled with all the friends, uh, to Seth Rogan's neighborhood, uh, the one filled with all the frat boys. You've got HOAs that ensure your house looks a certain way to that person across the street who keeps looking at you a certain way. Hashtag creepy guy next door. Everybody, everybody has experiences with and stories about neighbors. Certain organizations like State Farm have actually built their entire marketing campaign around this, have they not? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The problem though is that many of us, uh, for many of us, our experiences with our neighbors, they have been anything but good. I mean, in all actuality, the tune probably sounds more like this. Like a good neighbor, stay over there. Come on, I worked hard on that. Y'all, that was hard. That was difficult. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Token gesture. Not cool. I actually heard a radio announcement, I kid you not, this week for a new uh, development here in the Denver area. And one of the selling points for the new neighborhood was the lots were so big that you only had to wave to your neighbors, you didn't actually have to ever engage in conversation with them. And then Angie's List sent out this. This is the June edition of Angie's List magazine, and it says, Nightmare neighbors, meet the people who drive you crazy. Uh, we all have a thought or story or experience with neighbors, do we not? And this whole idea of being afraid of them or hating their guts or staying far away from them, that's something we're trying to remedy in and through this series. Because closing our garage doors and closing our blinds and ultimately closing our hearts to the people who live right next door to us, that's just not, that's just not cool, according to Jesus. You see, I wouldn't talk a whole lot about loving your neighbor if Jesus didn't talk a whole lot about loving your neighbor. But guess what? He did. This wouldn't be that big of a deal unless Jesus made it a big deal, but again, he did. Several times throughout the scripture, including Luke and Matthew, Jesus said the entire law, all of the commands of God, they boil down to two things, loving the Lord and loving your neighbor. 
But when it comes to this verse, when it comes to this command, when it comes to what Jesus was saying here, a vast majority of us do not think that Jesus meant the people right next door. Right? You didn't mean my neighbors, Jesus, when you told me to love my neighbors, Jesus. Right? I mean, surely you're not calling me to love the guy with the three yippy dogs. There is no way you want me to love the gal who's in her hot tub on the back porch that I can see out my bedroom window doing who knows what. You can't possibly be calling me to love the person who smells like you know what. No, no, no. You, you can't be calling me to love those people. Not them, right, Jesus? Well, according to the Good Samaritan story in Luke 10, that's exactly who we're called to love. That's exactly who our neighbors are. You see, it's in and through this infamous story that Jesus tells. One about a man who, who is beat up on a road and several people pass by him and don't even care about him. And then someone finally stops to care for him and show him some concern and some love. It's in this story. What Jesus is doing is he's causing us. He's, he's forcing us. He's calling us, if you will, to, uh, to rethink, to redefine, to reimagine who our neighbors are. And the people at the original time, right, it's, that day he was causing them to redefine their definition of neighbors. But I think today God is doing the same thing. It's not just a story that happened or that was told 2,000 years ago. It's a story that applies today. See, because in this story, Jesus is telling us that our neighbors are the people that we encounter yet disregard. Our neighbors are the people that we cross paths with but normally that we kind of steer clear of. Our neighbors are the people we normally care less about, but those are the ones we're supposed to really care about. And the ironic thing for us is that when we say, who's my neighbor, Jesus says, your neighbor. Your neighbor. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, that one. Oh, yeah, yeah, that family upstairs. Yeah, that, that person right next door. Your neighbor is your neighbor. So last week, um, we did a little activity called the block map. The block map is a way for us to take a step closer to our neighbors by committing to learning their names. I mean, it's hard to be a good neighbor, let alone love your neighbor, when you don't even know their name, right? Like, hey, buddy, hey, dude, hey, lady, and that's not going to cut it. So if you weren't here last week, you need to stop by the next steps table so you can grab your block map and you can start doing your homework and filling out the closest eight neighbors to you proximity-wise and getting to know them by name. Because you see, all the experts can speak to the benefits of doing this. Right? There's higher levels of happiness in neighborhoods where you know your neighbors by name. There are lower levels of crime in neighborhoods where you know your neighbors by name. Neighborhoods are safer. Your home is more peaceful when you care about that family. When you know those people, when you know by name that girl and her kids, this is amazing. Who knew? Who knew that loving your neighbor could change you, could change the world? Who knew? Oh, yeah, that's right. Jesus. I'm happy to say, church, I have to brag just a little bit. Last week, here was my block, block map. I don't know if we have that picture up, but I had a couple of blanks. I had a couple of question marks. A year and a half, I've lived in this house. The people right across the street, I've never talked to them. Well, this week, guess what? I talked to them. That upper left family, that's Tom and Bonnie. Thank you very much. I was out there in the garage doing some things, and I saw Tom and Bonnie doing some yard work, and it's like, somebody's going to make me practice what I preach. 
Becca, Becca. <clears throat> so I put a shirt on, which I thought would be helpful. And I, and I maybe, maybe not, maybe kind of how Tom rolls, I don't know. So I went over, Tom, Bonnie, great to meet you. And it went well. We're like BFFs now, man. I was like, okay, we're not. They're still pretty closed off and, and would rather be reclusive, but that's okay. I know them by name. It's a start, is it not? And I loved hearing all the stories the last couple of days about people saying, I've lived in a certain neighborhood for 30 some odd years and I still don't know so-and-so down the street and I'm going to try to do it now. Or I was walking my dog and, and now I'm going to actually pick up the poop on that person's yard instead of just, <laughs> like, hey, that, wow, yeah, you love Jesus. I don't know if you, if you knew this, but, but Shar is trying to do this very same thing with the kids. So here's a, here's a block map from one of the little ones that did this last week downstairs. Because we're asking them to know their neighbors by name as well. They'll probably be a lot better at it, won't they? But it's fun to see the kids, to see who do they know. Do they have as much hesitancy as we do when it comes to, to knowing the neighbors? I want to point something out to you about this block map. I didn't mention this last week. You live in a specific house, right? It's that, it's that little yellow one right there in the middle. That's your house. That little house is in a specific neighborhood. It's located on a specific street. It's in a certain community. And I believe with all of my heart that you live and you reside in that specific place for a specific purpose. Acts 17, 26 tells us that. From one man, Adam, God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, God, he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. From one man, God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now, in this verse, Paul's given this great sermon. He's kind of talking about the sovereignty of God, the power of God as seen throughout all of human history. And he points out in this verse that God has controlled the rising of nations and the falling of nations. That certain countries have come and gone because of his specific design. But what is true for the nations, church, is also true for our neighborhoods. What Paul is saying here applies to us on a more personal level. It says, God is the one who appointed your time. Why were you born in the last couple of decades and not 4,000 years ago? Why? Because God appointed your time. And not only did he appoint your time, but then he set the boundaries of your land. He knew exactly when you would live and where you would live. That little 9,000 square foot lot you've got, those five acres you have, that 1,200 uh, square foot apartment, that's your land. Those are the, the boundaries of your land, and God has given that to you. He's purposed that to you. He's designed you to live in that space. You see, church, you are in the house you are in. You are in the apartment that you are in. You have the neighbors that you have, not by accident, but by divine appointment. You with me? He set your time, and he determined the boundaries of your land. You are in the house you are in. You are in the apartment complex that you're in. You have the neighbors that you have, not by accident, but by divine appointment. See, where you live, who you live next to, what house you are in right now, it's not 
primarily determined by what you could afford at that time or what was available on the market at that time or what school district you wanted to be in at the time. Those are factors that God definitely uses, but God played a bigger part, had a bigger role in finding you a home than any of those other factors did. He has determined your time and set the boundaries of your land. You are in that place for a reason. Which means that you are in this moment, you are in this home, you are in this apartment complex, you are in this condo, you're in this teepee. I don't know where you live, but you're in that by God's design. But if we're honest, guys, our experiences have been pretty far from that, right? I'm talking about life-giving, divinely appointed. You're like, yeah, those aren't phrases I normally use when it comes to talking about my neighbors. Like annoying and distracting, draining, those seem more appropriate. But I have to think, and the authors of the book, The Art of Neighboring, Dave Runyon and, and Jay Pathak, they would agree. Most of us, we don't want that to be true. Most of us, deep down, we want to be good neighbors. Most of us want to love the people right next door or right upstairs. Most of us want to care for the people that God has placed in our path. We want to take Jesus literally. We want to love our neighbors when he says, love our neighbors. But something's holding us back. Something is stopping us from doing that. Something is making it difficult, if not impossible, for us to do that. And I think it's the very same thing that stopped God's people from entering into the promised land thousands and thousands of years ago. Let me show you what I mean. Numbers chapter 13, if you have a Bible, open it there. Let me give you a little context before we read the chapter together. In Numbers 13, God's people, they're on the move. They're moving from Egypt, the place of captivity and bondage and slavery, that which they have known for 400 years, and they're moving now into the promised land, a place of abundance and blessing and prosperity. So they're on the move. There's only one problem, though, with this land that they're going into. It's already occupied. Someone's already seen the beauty and the bounty of this land, and they've claimed it as their own. So not, they're not moving into unoccupied territory. In fact, it's, it's just the opposite. So God tells Moses, the man who's in charge of leading the charge, Send some spies out into this promised land. Across the way, send some spies out to see what the land is like, to see what the people are like, to see what the cities are like. That's where we're going to pick up the story, Numbers 13. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. Jumping ahead to verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said this, Go up through the Negev and into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good land? Is it bad land? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile? Is it poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best even to bring back some of the fruit from that land. So they went up, these spies, and they explored the land. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes, and two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and some figs. Well, at the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. In other words, it's awesome. Here's its fruit. 
this thing is one cluster of grapes. But the people, oh, the people who live there, they're powerful. And their cities, they are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. I guess this would be similar to be like, we saw Arnold Schwarzenegger-like people there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites all live in the hill country. And the Canaanites, oh no, they live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb, one of the spies, stood up and silenced the people before Moses. And he said, what's the big deal? We should go up and take possession of the land. We can certainly do it. But the man who had gone up with him said, oh, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. So they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. We seem like grasshoppers to them. All right, now think about this with me. God's people are literally on the doorstep of the promised land. Let's say this, this sanctuary represents Egypt and a life of bondage and slavery and captivity. Here's the promised land. This stage, they are right there. They are one step away from entering into the life God originally designed for them and the land God has promised to them. This is land and a promise and a hope and a life they've been looking forward to since Abraham and thousands of years before this. They could see it. They could, they could smell it. And now they got grapes the size of softballs or basketballs. They can taste it. They can touch this promise. But they don't take this step. They don't take the one step of faith required to enter into that land. I mean, they could have, in all honesty, art, uh, marched into Canaan like Ricky Ricardo used to march into, into his house each night, right? Hello, stay at home. Sorry, really bad impersonation. That's all I got. But he came in like he was the king of the castle because he was the king of the castle. And they could have marched in just like that. But they didn't. The Israelites, God's people, were so close to living out the life he intended for them. And yet so many of them would remain so far away from it. But why? Well, it's the exact same reason that most of us don't go meet the person next door. It's the exact same reason we could care less about the people upstairs. It's the exact same reason it took me 16 months to meet Tom and Bonnie. It's called the fear factor. You guys remember that show? Anybody used to watch the fear factor? Pretty, pretty decent television, right? I mean, you get to watch people like covered with scorpions or covered with bees on their face. Like, that's fun TV. The point of the show was to see how far somebody could go without fear paralyzing them. Well, if God's people were on the show, at least God's people from Numbers 13, they wouldn't make it past the pilot episode because they're afraid. They're afraid of everything, and they are paralyzed by this fear. They are scared to death to take this next step of faith and to step out and say, okay, God, you said, you promised, you, you once kind of gave us the right to do this, but I don't know, I don't really know about this. They were so afraid of what came next, and I have to think that many of us are as well. I mean, we know that God says to love our neighbors. We know that the second greatest commandment is to love the people right next door to us as we love ourselves. But most of us don't even know their names. 
I have to think it's because of fear. You see, in fear, because of fear, we start to think, we start to imagine, and then we start to believe worst-case scenario. That's what happened to the Israelites. They were afraid of the unknown. They were afraid of stepping up and stepping out. And so they let this fear, this fear of, of the uh, Anakites or Canaanites or whoever it might have been, the fear of the land, the fear of the unknown, the fear of, of God doing something miraculous in and through them, the fear of all of that, it dictated what they did or did not do. And so what they did not do was enter into the land like God had promised. It's worst case scenario thinking. The people there are so big, they will crush us. The land there, it devours everyone who lives in it. I don't know how thousands of people still live in it, but it devours everybody there. We're like grasshoppers. Yeah, you think you're tall? No, you're not tall. These guys are two times as big as you. They start saying this stuff. They start thinking this stuff. They start believing this stuff. And then it says they start spreading rumors about this stuff. Did you pick up on that? Yeah, psst, psst, man, you don't believe that land. Oh, it's nasty. We can't go in there. No way. They came to believe the promised land was not a real possibility. And so they stayed on the wrong side of the line. They stayed on the wrong side of the promise. They stayed on the wrong side of God's plan. And this had to frustrate the Lord for so many reasons. But at the top of the list had to be, I'm just imagining, it had to be the fact that none of those things were true. All of that stuff, all of those things were a lie. They were completely convinced otherwise, though. Let me show you how I know this. So fast forward now 40 years in the story. The Israelites are again on this threshold, on this border, on the doorstep of the promised land. They're given a second chance to enter it. Now everybody who was there 40 years before, they've died in the desert. They never got to go into the promised land. Except the two spies that said, what's the big deal? Let's go in. But now here we are again with a second chance for the life and the land that God had intended for them. And like the first time, they send some spies out. Let's go see what the land is like. It's been 40 years since we've seen it. Let's go see what it's like. And when the spies go out, they actually find uh, and take refuge, if you will. They befriend, of all people, this prostitute named Rahab. They're trying to hide out and, and make it so that nobody knows they're looking at the land. And Rahab takes them in and says, you can stay here with me tonight. Listen to what she says, Joshua 2. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof. And she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of all this, our hearts melted in fear. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is the God in heaven above and on the earth below. This prostitute tells these spies that are now in the promised land that the people who live in that land, they have been shaking in their boots for 40 years at the prospect of God's people coming in and taking over their land. When we heard about what happened in Egypt, oh yeah, that was 40 years ago. When we heard about that, we would have laid down our lives because we were overcome with fear. But wait, you were like grasshoppers. You were going to crush us. 
But wait, this land devours everybody. But wait, there was no way we we're going to get through your fortified cities. We just knew it. We were convinced of it. Rahab's like, are you kidding me? You didn't come in here because you were afraid of us? It took you 40 years to make your way over here because you were afraid of us? We are so afraid of you. We would have given you the land. You could have marched right in like Ricky Ricardo. We would have said, well, I'm right here, honey. Here you go. You see how their perception of reality was completely off? You see how their fears were not based in truth? The exact opposite was true. They didn't look like grasshoppers 40 years ago. They looked like warriors of the one true God. And the people of the land would have just handed it over. But they were so afraid. They were so convinced of, of the bad things that were going to happen, of worst case scenario, that they did not take the step. And guys, I need you to just hear the enormity of those words. Joshua 2, 8 through 11, I just want that to be your mantra for the next couple of days. What you fear is actually not at all what is true. Your worst case scenario, it is not matching reality in the slightest. You with me? Because I am convinced that many of us, just like the Israelites, we still succumb to fear in worst case scenario. And this is true in so many areas of life, isn't it? From giving more to forgiving somebody in life. Well, if I do that, I'm just sure that this bad stuff's going to happen. From, from sharing your faith with somebody, from taking a new job, to serving somebody in need, to reaching out, to whatever it might be. So many of us immediately go to worst case scenario, don't we? What's the bad thing that's going to happen? What are the horrible things that are going to go on? And nowhere I don't think is this more evident and more true than when it comes to loving our neighbors. Think about the crazy, foolish, absurd, idiotic, whatever right-click synonym you can come up with for the stupid stuff that we, that we say and believe when it comes to loving our neighbors. What, what if I go out to meet my neighbors, but I say something dumb, and they think that I'm an idiot? I'm going to have to live there still. No, I'm going to have to move. All of my belongings. I'm going to have to move. I love this house. I don't want to move. No, 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 no. What if they have salivating rabies-infested pit bulls right at the front door? No, 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 no. What if I accidentally wake up one of their kids? What if their kids have head lice and my kids get it? What, what if they do what I do? And after looking through the little side bathroom window, lock the door and turn off the lights. Or what if, heaven forbid, they open the front door? What if the cookies I make them have peanuts in it? And they're allergic. And they suddenly break out in anaphylactic shock. I don't have an EpiPen with me. You with me? You with me here? This is exactly how we think. This is exactly what fear-based, worst-case scenario mentality looks and sounds like. And it can get way out of hand. And as your pastor, as your friend, i got to just put a stop to it. Because it's crazy the things that we will believe. The people are like grasshoppers, and they will crush us. That sounds a lot like this. My neighbors don't want to be bothered. They're not going to like me anyway. The land is going to devour us. That sounds just like, well, I'm an introvert. I'd only make things awkward. Those are fear-based, fear-driven excuses. 
that are stopping you from crossing over into the life and the land that God intended you to go into. You with me? Just like God's people, we are full of fear. Just like the people of old, we are full of excuses. We are full of worst case scenario. And if we continue to live in that way, we're going to miss out, guys. We're going to miss out on so many things. What was needed back then is needed today. I would think even more so. Courageous, confident Christians who will step out in faith for Christ. 2 Timothy 1.7. For the spirit that God gave us, it does not make us timid. It does not allow us to be filled with or controlled by fear. No, instead, we now have power, love, and self-discipline. See, the spirit that God has given you gives you power, power to stand firm, power to stand tall, power to stand up against fear and to say no to worst-case scenarios. The spirit God has given you gives you the ability to love, to see people, to know people, to reach out to people, to befriend people, even people that are awkward or that are strangers to you or that don't think or act or live like you. You have love in you. The spirit that God has given to you gives you self-discipline. That means you can remain calm. That means you will be balanced. You will stay in control. You will know what to do in any and every situation. That's the spirit that's in you, Christian. A spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. And anybody who chooses fear, everybody else that, that is succumbing to awkwardness, when everybody else around us wants to believe worst-case scenario, Christians say no. We are crossing into what is true and what is real and what is right. And that's a relationship with my neighbors. You, Christian, have the power and the ability to break this vicious cycle of fear-based, worst-case scenario thinking. You just step right into the middle of it. Boop! We're not grasshoppers. The land won't devour you. The cities aren't fortified. And you will show the world what is true and right when you step into what is true and right. So this week, your homework, fill out your block map. If you got question marks on there, don't come to church next week until you got them all filled in. <laughs> Sounded pretty bold right there, right? All right, maybe not, but anyway, just try to get a few more names, please. But in addition to just getting the neighbors, getting to know the neighbors by name, I want you to do something else. I want you to start examining the assumptions and the perceptions that you have about your neighbors. Is that guy really a deadbeat dad? Is he really? Or is that just a fear-based, worst-case scenario thought that's gone through your head? Does that family really care less about their yard and the upkeep of their house? Do they really care less? Or is it just something you are thinking and assuming? Is that woman really that rude and inconsiderate? Or is that a worst-case scenario thought that you have believed to be true? I want you to think now, as you are thinking about your neighbors, is that an assumption I'm making out of fear, or is, that it's, or is that truth? And you won't know until you get to know them. So have some fun. I want you to start thinking and then praying about the bold, courageous next step that you might take into the promise of God, into the heart of God, into the life that God intended for you to have. What is that next step for you? Is it forgiving a neighbor? Is it getting to know a neighbor by name? Is it taking them some, some peanut-free cookies? What is it? What is the courageous, bold, confident, 
spirit-filled next step you can take to love your neighbor. Stop living on this side of the land, okay? The land is yours. God is in you. The promises are still true. Go take the land. Don't take their house over, whatever. It's a bad analogy. Go take the land. I'm going to invite the band up one more time to close us out in that song that we sang before the sermon. Because now I want you to actually sing it like you believe it. Now I want you to sing it as if, as if you are asking God to convince you that you are a child of his, therefore you have nothing to fear. I told them if I stopped talking before 11.15, they could sing it again, and it's 11.13, so we're going to do it. Let me pray this over us, though, and we'll sing this song. It's kind of a mantra and a declaration of who we are and what's possible through God. Father, your people, it seems like, throughout all of time, have just succumbed to fear, God. We just give in to fear so quickly, so easily. And I want this truth to, to be applied to so many of the things that are going on in our life, God. Starting a new job, maybe moving to a new city, stepping out in faith. We immediately and almost always think worst case scenario. Help us to stop doing that. That's just not of you. That's just not right. We just pray that we will be confident. We pray you, we will have your spirit in us, a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline that we will no longer give in to fear, that we will no longer think worst case scenario, but instead we will courageously step out in faith and we will do what you're asking us to do, that we'll love our neighbors. Our life will be more abundant, as will theirs, when we take this step. Let's help us to be courageous and do it now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing this song together. When we're done, you're out of here.